had they seen a man. They had been walking with him for some time. They saw him reach out and touch the man that was blind, and he could see. They saw him another time reach out and touch the man who could not hear, and, and the man's ears were opened. Those that could not speak, he opened the dumb so that they could speak. He reached down and touched a leper, and the leper became clean. Oh, everywhere that Jesus went, he was doing powerful things. They'd just never seen anybody like this before. I'm sure they remembered the time that, he was, that they were in the boat and the in the dark hours, they saw him coming across, walking on the water. He even walked on water. He, he, he calmed the storm. My friends, there wasn't anything that Jesus could not do. He just was someone like they had never experienced before. They were walking with him one time, and they were coming to maybe a place where they had not been before in the far north of where they were accustomed to live and, work and minister came to a place called Caesarea Philippi. And there in Caesarea Philippi, Jesus turned to his disciples and he said this, Who do people say I am? Well, they had all kinds of answers. They'd heard the stories. They were all, everyone was amazed at this man Jesus. And, and some were saying that uh, he was John the Baptist come back to life. Others were saying that he was Elijah. Some said, no, they're, they're saying you're Jeremiah. And others just said, well, you're one of the prophets. It was then that Jesus asked that personal question. That's the way Jesus is, you know. He, he's not so interested in whatever everyone else is saying. He wants to know what you're saying. He wants to know what's happening in, in your life. And that's when he said... But who do you say I am? And in Peter's finest hour, he says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, Well, you didn't get that from, from other men. You, you heard this from my Father in heaven. And at that point in time, Jesus began to give uh, the disciples some very important teaching. He communicated three truths that I want to talk about today. Three simple but very critical truths. He said this in Matthew chapter 16, verse 17. The same story is recorded in the other two synoptic gospels, but here in Matthew 16, 17, I'm reading, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jodah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. From that time on, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed, and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself 
and take up his cross and follow me. Lord Jesus, open our hearts and minds today. Help us to hear what you're saying to the church. Help us, Lord, not only to have these truths firmly embedded in our mind, but may they take root deep in the heart and cause change that we might be made more into your image, made more like Christ, we pray. Amen. I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. My friends, that's one of the greatest promises we've been given. Sometimes I think we're, we're in our churches and, and we just think, you know, that everything's working against us. It's the culture. It's, it, people's lives are so busy and there's so many things that are going on in the church. We're just never going to be successful at this thing of building the church and extending the kingdom. But my friends, Jesus has made this promise to his early disciples and he makes this same promise to us today. I will build my church. This is what he said. It's a promise, not from me, my friends. It's a promise from Jesus himself. You believe him, right? When he speaks to you? Do you really believe he's going to build the church in this day? Do you believe he's going to build it in, in your community, where you're at? Do you really believe that God has a plan for your church and your community and he can build this church? My friends, there's nothing that can stop him. Absolutely nothing. Do you know that he is the same today? He's told us this in the scripture, but do you know that he is the same today as he was yesterday? He'll be the same in the future also, down in the time called forever. He is not changed. He is the same God that healed those who could not speak and those who could not hear and those who could not see, those who are filled with demons. He's the same God today. He's not changed. He's not just the same in the Horn of Africa, my friends, but he's the same right here in America. Oh, my friends, we serve a risen Savior, a risen Lord. He's the King of kings. He's going to build his church, and he's going to do it through us. Nothing is going to stop him. There was a man in southern Sudan, a small village. He had a terrible headache. Was, well, he had had this for years. We would call it a migraine headache. He wouldn't know that terminology. All he knew that this headache was causing him so much trouble, he couldn't enjoy life. He had to get rid of it. He didn't know what to do. There were no hospitals or doctors to go to, so he went to the witch doctor there in the village. He said to the witch doctor, can you help me? He explained his problem. He says, I've got to get rid of this headache. I can't stand it any longer. The witch doctor said, yes, I can help you. I can take that headache away, but you're going to have to follow my instructions explicitly. Do exactly what I say. He says, I'll do anything. Just, just tell me what I've got to do if you can take this headache away. So the witch doctor began to give him instructions. He says, you've got to find uh, one of your very closest relatives, someone you really love. And you go to that person and you cut off their head. And you, you take this head and you bring it back to me and, and put it before me and I'll lay my hands on that head and I'll say the right words and that headache that you have will be transferred to this other man. Well, I'm sure about one thing, that man had a headache. Well, this guy said, I, I've got to get rid of this. And he didn't want to 
behead his closest relative, but he was desperate, and so he agreed to do it. He was considering who that might be. And while he was considering it, two or three Nazarenes came into his village that day, and they set up this big screen, and they set up this equipment. They'd never seen anything like this before, you know, and when it became dark, they turned on the the video equipment, and, and there in that village, Jesus was seen for the very first time, and among the crowd was this man with a headache, still trying to figure out whose head he's going to get. And he's watching this, you know, and it was in his own language, so he was very interested in what, was, what the drama that was playing out there, and he began to watch Jesus, and he saw Jesus healing so many people. And this man, who did not know God in any way, as he was watching Jesus on the screen, prayed his very first prayer. He says, Jesus, if you can do it for them, you can take my headache away. And this man gave testimony that he said it was just like somebody walked up behind him with a cold pail of water and poured it over his head. He said, I felt this cold feeling moving from my head all the way down to the bottom of my feet. He said, when that cold moved through my body, it was instantaneous, my friends. He said, my headache was gone. Well, you might be interested to know that he lost more than his headache on that day. He lost all those sins that he was carrying with him. He became a Christian, now is a very active member in the Church of the Nazarene. Oh, we've got, uh, we've got lots of witch doctors in the Horn of Africa, they're everywhere you turn. I've lost count on how many witch doctors the Lord Jesus Christ has saved. At one time, I knew it was 15. I've heard some numbers since that time, and I understand now it's over 25 witch doctors that have come to Christ. You have some brothers, my friend. You have some brother Nazarenes who are witch doctors now are following Jesus Christ. It's just incredible what God is doing. He, he's not only reaching witch doctors, he's moved into Muslim communities. We've had whole mosques become churches, Christians in Nazarene churches. I've lost count of that too. Last I knew it was like seven, and I think now it's over that number, where the whole assembly of followers of Muhammad have made a decision to follow Jesus Christ. I've been in one of those. It's just incredible what God is doing amongst the witch doctors, amongst the Muslims, amongst animistic people who have no concept of who God is or if there even is a God. God is moving in such a tremendous way. It was just a few months ago in a place called Yeri, Ethiopia, there, um, there was some Nazarenes that were joined together for a holiness conference. I, I'm glad after this, um, this session we're going to have a, um, some instructions on how we can move this holiness conference to other places. And Louis has told us that you know, his vision is that this takes place in every local church. Do you know that in the Horn of Africa we have more, and you're not going to believe this, but that's okay, we have more than 200 holiness conferences taking place every month. Multiply that by 12. More than 200. Every month. 
all over the Horn of Africa. We cluster our churches in groups of 10. There might be seven, there might be 11, but we target around 10. And so geographically, wherever you have 10 churches, they're clustered together. They're not a zone or anything like that. They're a close fellowship. We call them a hubber, and these people meet. They walk to one another's churches. I understand that there were some pastors that didn't make it because of the two-hour drive. They'll walk a day to get to this every month. They rotate, and they have a different church, and when they go, they, they all walk, and they carry their grain for their meals. They don't have meal tickets. They, if they don't carry grain in the sack, they won't eat. Every month, they come together, these groups of, of 10 churches all over the Horn of Africa, and they're preaching and teaching about holiness. They're going out and doing evangelism in the community. They do local compassionate ministry. There's things that go on there that is just incredible. It's like the book of Acts where the disciples would meet together and regularly in fellowship and breaking bread together. and All of this is taking place, and it's, it's so rich. Talk about discipleship. What we need... Be careful about this. I don't know if we need more curriculum. What we need is more preaching of holiness. What we need is more churches coming together on a regular basis and teaching each other and preaching and, and challenging one another. Oh, my friends, a lot of what's happening in the Horn of Africa, well, it's all because of what God is doing, but a lot of it is because God has helped us to cluster our churches and bring them together, regularly meeting and having these holiness conferences. Well, one of those conferences was taking place. This was in a brand new area. One year ago, we had zero churches in this area. We had zero contacts. We didn't, even, we didn't have a person to call and, and say, would you be interested? We have absolutely nothing in this particular pioneer area. And today, 10 months later, well, the last I heard, we have about 100 organized churches. Organized. I'm not talking preaching points. Organized. In one area. That area is 80% Muslim. God is moving. And these churches had come together. Some of these brand new churches, they don't even know how to spell Nazarene. They know how to preach holiness, but they don't know how to spell our name. Oh, my friends, they came together, and, and there were about 1,000 people on this particular day. And they were worshiping. They weren't only Nazarenes. There were other evangelicals coming to see what this new church was that came into the area. They wanted to hear what the preaching was and see if we were okay. And then there were many Muslims that were standing like this. That, that's, that was really comfortable for us. <laughs> Usually they're not standing like this, but they were watching and they were looking for some way to criticize, to do something. We were in their community. Preaching was going on. And at this time, there were four Muslim men who had a friend. This friend was very well known in this whole community. They all considered him a godly man. He was a Muslim too. They considered him very godly. He lived a good life, but he could not walk. He could not walk from birth. Never had he taken one step. And they carried him. Four Muslim men, don't ask me why they did this. I, it, it's not explainable. They carried, these four Muslim men carried this Muslim friend of theirs. They could not walk, and they went to another evangelical church. The pastor met them there, and uh, they said, we'd like to have you pray for this man and see if he can be healed. Well, the pastor wasn't very comfortable with that. They knew he, the, he knew that the men never, had never walked before, and, and he wasn't sure he liked the church of Nazarene. I won't go into the details of that, but what he decided to do is send them to the 
holiness conference. <laughs> they said, take them over here. The, the Nazarenes are meeting. They're having some kind of a conference. Take them to them and see what they can do. And in they come. These four Muslim men, they're carrying this man and the conference is going on. Picture it now, a thousand people there. And, and they bring him up front and they laid him on the altar while the pastor was preaching. Pastor stopped. He also knew the man. Also knew that he had never taken one step. He walked down in front. He says, you know, God can do anything. We've been reading the book of Acts, and, and he's not changed, so let's pray for him. He laid his hands on that man and began to pray. I wish you'd have been there. I wish you'd been in the front row because you would have seen that while the pastor was praying, those twisted, skinny legs that had never been used began to twist. And they straightened. And, 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 and those that were there were telling how, how it looked like just strength had come and, and the, the legs were expanding and, and pretty soon the man knew there was a difference and he, he, he stood up and, and the next thing they knew this man is running and singing and praising God. Forty Muslims went from this to running to the front of the church. And they knelt before the pastor and they said, we need Jesus. It wasn't doctrine that changed. Doctrine is important. I believe that too. But doctrine didn't change them that day. The power of God at work in their community changed them. They knew that this, this, this Jesus that they were talking about was different than who they'd been following before. Oh, my friends, the place broke out. A thousand people cheering. Some of them were jumping up and down, and they were excited, and even the Muslim people were moving around. It was, it was something. Took him a while to calm down. Finally, the man went over and sat down, and the pastor got back up again to preach again, and as he's preaching, there was a woman in the, in the back. And she was saying to her friends, she said, you know, this is a shame for me to sit here. That man was a Muslim, and Jesus healed him. And I'm a Christian, and I need healing. But she says, I'm not going up. Not after what God has just done. What if I go up, and God doesn't heal me? The whole environment will just crash. We'll take away the excitement of this meeting. And she was with some Christian friends, and they agreed, don't, no, no, don't go up. Don't go up. We don't want to ruin this thing. <laughs> they said, we'll take you to the doctor on Monday morning. We'll, we'll take you there. This woman had some kind of an infection. She had not urinated in three days. Her stomach was bloated, and, I mean, she was really sick. She needed something that day. But she says, I don't want to ruin this. I don't know how it happened, but the word spread throughout the congregation that was sitting there because they overheard and one thing came to another. And pretty soon, the pastor somehow heard about this woman who needed prayer but didn't want to come up. He stopped preaching again. He says, if there's someone else here who needs to be healed, bring them up, forth, bring them up front while God is still here. And so they carried this woman up. The pastor laid his hands on her and began to pray. I don't know, I'm always a little bit uncomfortable 
finishing this story in the churches, but uh, and it's even worse today with general superintendents here. I don't know how to say this except to tell you while he prayed, the urine just gushed forward. She was healed. Sometimes Jesus can reach down and touch us at the very material, basic places, huh? She was healed. Well, the place went crazy again. It was unbelievable. The, the excitement that came into that place. Oh, my friends, I'm still hearing stories about it. Our church that was in this particular community went from, um, I think it was about 30 people. The pastor wanted to leave. Didn't have enough support. He was starving. His family was starving. After this all happened, the church now is like 250 people and growing and planting many churches. My friends, it's not building a church up to be a big church. It sounds good. I don't know if you've ever studied the statistics and looked at the growth that takes place in large churches versus those that take place in small churches. You will find that more growth takes place in small churches on the average. We need to multiply our churches. And this church began to plant other churches. And something incredible is going on in that area. Huh. They, they, they left their boundaries. One of them left this new pioneer area, which now is going to be phase two district in this first year district assembly. Dr. Porter will get the opportunity for that one. One of them crossed over the boundaries and went into an area that the Church of Nazarene International doesn't know anything about yet. It's not even a pioneer area. It's a target area in our minds, but he didn't know that, and he walked into this other area. He went into a village in a very difficult place and began to preach Jesus, and you cannot believe what happened. Well, we had a leadership meeting going on just last week in Addis Ababa. Our leader, the one who prayed for the crippled man and the woman who was sick, he was there. He got the phone call. He hung up, and he says, I, I, I got to give this report. He says, I just, got, I just got a phone call from one of, our, one of our Nazarenes that went into this new area outside of our district, and he just told me that he was preaching there last night, and the whole village came to Christ. And then he went on like it was nothing. He was under something else. And I said, wait a minute, stop. What does it mean that the whole village came to Christ? He said, I don't know. I have no idea. They just said the whole village came to Christ. One of our other leaders was dispatched last week to this brand new area to see what's going on. My friends, I, I need to tell you, Jesus has not changed. There's nothing that he can't do today. It was that way yesterday. It's the same today. There's no restrictions on what God can do. Oh, don't let, don't. We listen to CNN too much. We think everything's bad news, that God is losing. God's not losing. Jesus is building his church. Amen. God. Oh, there's nothing that can stop him. We're so afraid of Muslim people here in America. Why? Is God afraid? Is, is Jesus unable? No, my friends. Muslims are coming to Christ by the thousands. Islam cannot stop Jesus. Where do we get the idea that this is, this is a frontier out there that we have to enter yet, and, and it's an impossible thing? 
I remember when I sent my application into World Mission, there was something on there that said something like, uh, is there any place you will not, where would you like to go? And then there's another one, is there any place you would not want to go? I, yes, I said, yes, I do not want to go where there are any Muslims. I don't know if it's God or the Church of Nazarene had a sense of humor to send me in five countries where 70% of the people are Muslim people. It's hard to drag me out of there now. My friends, God's not afraid of Muslims. He loves them. He died for them. He wants to use us to reach them. Muslims cannot stop Jesus from building his church. The witch doctors cannot. They can cut off heads and say all kinds of words over their heads. They can do anything they want. They cannot stop Jesus from building his church. They're just not going to be successful because Jesus has already won the battle and the war. Oh, my friends, nothing can stop them. Everywhere I turn, I see complications and things that would work against the, the gospel spreading in the Horn of Africa, but there's nothing that's stopping Jesus. The word of God is spreading like wildfire there. People are coming to Christ. I'm talking about resistant people are coming to Christ. Nothing can stop Jesus. I don't know about this particular passage. You know, usually when Jesus is teaching, he always uses something that's there in the context as an object lesson. I, I think when he was talking about the parable of the sower, you know, I, I imagine this man walking out and throwing seed. That's the way he was. He had always used things that they could see and relate with. And I don't know how he did it here, exactly what he did, but it's as if he says, even, even the gates of hell... You read it there, right? Even the gates of hell cannot stop me from building my church. Not all the demons, not Satan himself. My friends, no one can stop Jesus from building the church. He has promised us, I will build my church, and nothing's going to stop me. We can go to the bank on that one. If you leave here with nothing else, go back to your church, go back to your community, knowing that Jesus will build his church. Today, anywhere. But there's some other truths that need to be tied to this one. We have to be careful about taking things out of context. I said nothing can stop Christ from building his church, but actually Jesus plopped right here in this passage one exception to the rule. How was he going to build his church? Well, he said... Very specifically, and I tell you that you're Peter, and on this rock, I'll build my church. He's got a, he's got a foundation. He's got a method, and he's going to follow it. Whether we follow his method or not doesn't really matter because he's going to work in no other way but to build his church on this foundation, on this rock. And my friends, it's not Peter himself. Some have looked to Peter as the foundation, but my friends, there's one thing we need to learn, and that is that God does not build his kingdom on personalities. I don't care how personable you are or, or, or just how winsome you are, how gifted you are. My friends, Jesus is not going to build his church on your personality. If your church is being built on your personality, it will fall. Come now or come later. 
it's going to fall because Jesus has promised to build a church, but on one foundation alone, and that is not on a personality, but on this rock that he's referring to, this rock of Peter's testimony. That's how he builds a church. Who do you say I am? Christ, the Son of the living God. It's that profession of who Jesus is and what he's done and what he's doing in our life that brings people into the kingdom. That's the only way he's going to do it. Try it another way, but it's going to fail because he's promised to work in one way and has to build the church on a foundation of the testimony of not only the apostles then, but you and I, the disciples today. If we're not giving testimony, my friends, to who Jesus is and what he's doing in our lives on a constant basis, we're failing to allow Jesus to have opportunity to build a church through us. I'm afraid that we so often get it all wrong. Sometimes we go out to plant a church. Recently somebody told me, stop planting churches. First I didn't understand it, but then I talked to the person a little bit more, and I understood. He says, don't plant churches, plant Jesus. My friends, if you are telling people in your community, we've got a great church, you just need to come, we have services here at this time and that time, and you'll enjoy them, and we've got something for your youth, and we have this and we have that, <laughs> Jesus will not build his church on the testimony of your local congregation. We've got to plant Jesus. When you get down to the bottom line, the kingdom grows as we plant Jesus, as we preach Jesus, as we testify to who he is, as we testify to what he's doing in our life. My friends, that's what brings people to the kingdom. That's how churches grow. That's how the kingdom spreads. But so often, we go about it trying to attract people. I'm a little troubled over the attraction methodology that we use in this day. Let's develop a ministry that attracts people. That sounds good. But my friends, if we don't preach Jesus, if we don't teach Jesus, if we don't proclaim Jesus, if we don't testify about Jesus, the kingdom won't grow. I'll build my church in one way, upon the testimony of my disciples. You've heard a lot about the Jesus film, and I, I'll, I'll tell you that I'm a believer in the Jesus film, used in the right way. I'm glad for the Jesus film. Some Americans have said to me, well, it's wonderful what God can do with the Jesus film because we can't use the Jesus film. It doesn't fit our context here. And because of that, you grow, but we don't. Less than 10% of our churches come through the Jesus film. 90 plus percent comes from people, Nazarenes, who are walking to their neighbors and knocking on doors and saying, let me tell you about Jesus. My friends, it's wonderful to drive through much of the Horn of Africa. 
It's an incredible experience. You're going down the road and you're looking and, and, and Aramaeus is, actually Aramaeus has replaced me on July 1. I'm taking another assignment in the region. Aramaeus is saying, stop here. We need to talk to this man. He's one of our Nazarenes. And we stop and talk to him. And what's he doing? He was going to plant a church over here. And we drive a little further. And who's this man? Stop here. And we're talking with him. He's a Nazarene going to disciple somebody. Everywhere you're going, you're finding Nazarenes out talking about Jesus. There is no shortcut. Where's Chick Shaver? I'm glad I said in your class, Chick, taught me how to share Christ personally. I was frustrated with that as a layman for so many years. When God called me to ministry, I said, I've got to get in a class for personal evangelism. I've got to learn how to share my faith in Christ. I was so frustrated as a layman. And today, my friends, there are so many laymen and pastors who do not share their faith, who do not proclaim Jesus on a one-on-one -on -one basis. My friends, that's the way the kingdom grows. You'll find it in the book of Acts. I believe in public evangelism, but I also believe in personal evangelism, one-on-one -on -one for every man, woman, and child that knows Jesus Christ. Everyone. We're all called to be witnesses. I don't care if you have the gift of evangelism or not. We're all called to be witnesses. The kingdom is growing in, in the Horn of Africa, and I look around, and I know why it is. I see our Nazarene sacrificially walking and going places and talking about Jesus and preaching Jesus and teaching Jesus. Oh, my friends, let's stop planting churches here in America and start planting Jesus. The church will grow because Jesus will build his church on that. It's our job to plant Jesus. It's his job to build his church. That's what he said. He didn't say, you will build my church. He said, I will build my church. We plant Jesus, and he builds the church. Two very important truths. But there's one more. Actually, before I share that one, I want to tell the story. There's a man named Cariso. He's a layman, or was a layman. He used to be a, um, a commander of a rebel army in Ethiopia. Under his command, thousands had died. He was a feared man. He came into contact with a Nazarene Christian, and they shared with him about Christ. And I've never seen, I didn't know his life, I just heard stories about it before, but I've never seen such a radical change in a man. I've never met anybody who smiled so much, who loved so much, who was so passionate about Jesus. He was a restaurant owner. But he started... He says, you know, some, we have to have a Nazarene church here, and I'm not a pastor, but I can open my house, and, and we can have a church here, and they started to do that. Well, pretty soon, he had a pretty good-sized church growing, and they decided they needed to plant other churches, and Cariso says, well, I can help you plant churches. I just planted this one, so I know a little bit about this, and one of our other leaders were working with him, showing him how, and so he started taking some of his people from his congregation out. He's not the pastor, but he's, he's taking them out and showing them how to plant churches, how to plant Jesus. So the churches could grow and, oh, my friends, this man has planted so many churches. Not him personally all the time. He's always taking somebody with him. And when he plants the church, when he plants Jesus, he plants the church. When that happens, then he goes back and says, okay, you've been a church now for a month or two. You're already mature enough. We need to go out and plant another church. When I first visited his church, in eight months, he had planted five churches. 
And those five churches had already planted churches. He had many grandchildren. His first church had many grandchildren. He was always out planting churches. His wife became very concerned. One day she said, Cariso, you've got to stop this. I believe in what you're doing. I know God's called you into the Great Commission, and I'm for it. I'm supporting you. But spend just a little bit of time here running your restaurant. It's falling apart. We're losing our customers. We don't have enough money now even to send our kids to school and feed our family in a large family. Well, he says, well, let's pray about this and see what God says. And so they started praying, and when they finished the prayer, they had decided what God wanted them to do was him to continue to plant churches so she, he could, she could run the restaurant. And so that's what happened. And he would go out, and his town was the major, major town in that area, and all around it are these villages. And he's going to every village and, and, and planting churches and teaching those churches how to plant churches. And, and it's just amazing what's happening. The number of Nazarene churches that were, that were being planted, it was incredible. Twice a week, there's a market that takes place in Bona. That's his town. That's where his restaurant is, you know. Twice a week, there's a marketplace there. All the villagers come in, and it's interesting what would happen. All these villagers coming from, well, where there were Nazarene churches, and they came and they said, we're going to eat only at Cariso's restaurant. And... and <laughs> Well, he only had one restaurant, and he couldn't keep them all in there. They were waiting in line, this long line, and, and they were, well, he was, he was a little bit frustrated because he didn't want those people waiting so long, and he would go, you know, go to, the, here's another restaurant over here, and they said, no, we'll only eat in your restaurant. Well, they prayed about it, and they said, what can we do? And, well, they decided that God wanted them to start another restaurant. So he started another restaurant. And he continued to plant churches, and they continued to come in. And, and pretty soon, there's two long queues in both of those restaurants. Now they're planning to start a third restaurant. I told Carissa his best business plan is to plant more churches. <laughs> God has worked through this man in such a powerful way. It's, it's amazing. It's incredible. One man, a layman, started a church in his home, and it grew into a real church. <laughs> I mean, a, a church that was excited about holiness and a great commission, and they started going and planting churches. And, well, he became a pastor, and then he became a zone leader, and then he became a sub-district leader. And in this October... We have a district assembly taking place in Owasa, Ethiopia, and in that district assembly, we're going to have one resolution set before the floor, and that resolution is we need to multiply into three districts, and here are the, the new boundaries for these three districts. The general superintendents have already approved this. In October, the general assembly is going to make that, that uh, district assembly is going to take that action, and so that should take about 10 minutes, and they're going to break up in that one compound and have three simultaneous district assemblies. I do not know if that's within the church structure. But we're doing it. And Cariso is being ordained in that district assembly. And he becomes the district superintendent of his one church that grew into about 300. 
After we multiply those districts, we're estimating there'll be 300 churches in each of the districts after they multiply. It just takes one man to build the kingdom in such a tremendous way where you live and where you work and where your church is. Just one man who's on fire and passionate about Jesus. He never tried to plant churches. He was planting Jesus. He was telling people, oh, look what happened to me. And they all knew. <laughs> they knew this man for a long time. He, they were treat, he was treated like the Apostle Paul, you know. <laughs> Is this, really, this guy really a Christian? Oh, it's incredible. God's going to build his church. He's going to do it through his disciples that are proclaiming Jesus Christ. One more truth that I want to share with you, which is so important to be tacked on to the second truth. You cannot take the second one out of context from the first, third. It won't work. The third truth. You know, it's, it's in verse 21 that you read from that time on. Jesus had just made his promise, I'll build my church. I'm going to do it through the testimony of my disciples. And then after that promise was made, from that time on, my friends, is connected. From that time on, he began to talk about death. First talking about his own death. I'm going to die. Peter says, no, no, don't do that. Jesus says, don't, don't. Don't think like a man. Think like God. I'm going to die. If I don't die, I can't build my church through your testimony. I've got to die. And then tacked right onto that, it's cemented together. He speaks these words which ring out to us today. They demand our attention. Verse 24 if anyone would come after me, he must, not should, not might, but must, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. He must. If you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, you must take up your cross and follow him. If you are a follower of Jesus, you must. This is... This is not me saying this. This is Jesus. You must take up your cross and follow me. One of my frustrations is the common understanding, or at least I've heard a lot of people say this. They said, you know, my cross to bear is my child that was born a certain way, and I, it's my cross I need to carry. Sometimes we think about the cross as a burden, but my friends, the cross was never a symbol of burden, although it was a burden for a while while Jesus carried it through the streets, but the cross is a symbol of death. <laughs> Full stop. We must die. Well, that's been said a few times in these last three days. Isn't it ironic that the most important thing that we can do is to die? <laughs> of all the things we can offer God, <laughs> there, there's only one thing that all the disciples must do, and that's die. I'm not talking about physical death. You know that. I remember 
sitting in the seminary listening to Dr. Rob Staples teaching me constructive theology. I remember he talked about the sinful man, the carnal nature. I really liked what he did. He curled over there before the class, and he said the carnal nature, that sinful nature, it looks just like this. If you could see the spirit and somehow take what I'm doing with my body and transform it into our spirit, our spirit is turned into ourself. That's why we're so me-orientated. That's why everything is important of what happens to me. Because that's all we can see. Oh, physically, our eyes may be looking out and seeing human beings walking around. And physically, we may, and spiritually, we may somehow have that relationship with God, and we do. It's amazing what happens when we're converted. There really is something amazing that happens. But with that sinful nature that's still within us, we're curved into ourself. Everything is about me. What's to my advantage? If I do this, what will happen to me? If I really get active and go out and share with Christ, what's going to happen to me? Will I be embarrassed? Will I lose my job? Me, me, my, my, I, I. And we try to build a church. But it looks something like this, you know. We go to people, oh, Jesus has transformed me. God's done a wonderful work in my life. And all they see is that inward spirit. My friends, if we're going to follow Jesus, if we're going to be his disciple, if he's going to build his church, we must take care of that inward nature. Let me tell you one concluding story. It's about a man named Abraham. Abraham was a priest in the Ethiopian Orthodox Church. Now you have to understand what it means to be Ethiopian, to be an Ethiopian Orthodox Christian. What it means is you have the ark. You know that, right? If you're looking for the ark, don't ask Indiana Jones where it is. Just come and ask one, one of the Ethiopian Orthodox Christians. It's in Ethiopia. They got the ark. They're the only true church because they're the only ones that have God. God somehow still exists in this box that they claim they have. Every Ethiopian Orthodox church has a Holy of Holies right here. If you go, I don't know if there's one in Colorado Springs. There is in Denver. Wherever you find it around the world, they got a Holy of Holies, and inside they got a replica of the Ark of the Covenant, and they're so concerned about the angels and the saints. They have angels' days, saints' days, but don't you dare say the name Jesus. There was an evangelist in the north. That's where it's the strongest, northern Ethiopia. This evangelist started talking about Jesus in this Orthodox community. They rushed up to him, 
A number of them held him tight. One reached in his mouth, got a hold of his tongue, and stretched the tongue as far as he could stretch it, while another cut it off. So he'd never mention the name Jesus again. You see, it's evangelicals to talk about Jesus. Evangelicals are trying to take over the world. They, they want to take away our culture, and so they're, they're afraid of evangelicals. So they want to hear the name Jesus. Another man was preaching in an Orthodox community, and they came and they held them down. Well, one man went home to get an axe, and they come back, and he chopped them up into small pieces. Abraham was a priest in this church. Another priest who was converted and became Nazarene talked with Abraham. Abraham accepted Christ. It was a wonderful conversion. He got sanctified, became a house church pastor. In that area, you can tell by the context that our church is underground. By the way, don't ever think about underground is not active of hiding. Our underground churches are just not preaching publicly. They risk their life daily talking with people about Jesus. He was following our strategy. Underground. Not publicly talking about Jesus. And one day, Jesus is talking to him during his personal devotions. And they say, he said to him, God said to Abraham, don't listen to Howie anymore. Now, he didn't really say that. But he did say, I want you to change your strategy. I want you to begin to speak publicly about me. I want you to be bold about my witness here in this community. It's okay, isn't it, if God changes the strategy? Abraham immediately obeyed, began to talk about Jesus publicly, telling him what happened to his life and, and preaching to him. And Well, the priests in the city became very upset, had him locked up, put in prison. But at that same time, there were eight other evangelical evangelists that were in that community, other denominations, but they were also in Fanot Salamos, the community. It's okay if it's public because everybody knows about the story there. And they began to... They, they put them in prison also because they were also talking about Jesus. So here it is. Abraham, our Nazarene house church pastor, and these other eight evangelical evangelists are all in prison, and the priest arranged a meeting. He called the whole town, city, whatever it is, together. Inhabitants is over about 3,000 or 6,000 plus. They were all there. You can't refuse the meeting when they call one. They're all there in the town square, 6,000 people, and the Orthodox priests, bring them before the crowd. And they said to him, you will deny Jesus Christ publicly today. If you don't, we're going to beat you. We're going to put you in prison. We might even kill you today. You have been proclaiming Jesus publicly, and now you'll deny him publicly. And one at a time, they had to step forward. Abraham was the last to speak. Started over here, and one at a time, they stepped out. And, and these men... One at a time, said, I deny Jesus. He's no longer my Lord and Savior. From this day forward, I walk without him. One at a time, eight of them did that. And then Abraham stepped forward. As he stepped forward, he said, there in the front row was his wife and his small children, wondering what he would do. As Abraham stepped forward, he said this, you can do whatever you want to me. You can beat me. You can put me in prison. Throw away the key. I don't care. Yes, you can kill me. I can't stop you. You can kill me right here. But whatever you do to me, I'll never deny Jesus. 
He is my Lord, my Savior. He's not only the Lord of the Lords, but he's my Lord, and I'll never deny him. Well, the priests were so unhappy, they rushed forward and began to beat these eight men right there before the crowd. And then something amazing happened. <laughs> these crowds that normally cut off tongues or chop people to pieces, they, they said, stop it. Don't beat that man. Talking about Abraham. They said, he lives here in our community. We see the way he lives. He lives better than any of us. In fact, they said, he lives better than you, our religious leaders. You leave him alone. Well, the priests weren't very happy, but they had to, because of the pressure of the crowd, had to let Abraham go that day. But you know what happened? Before the crowd dispersed, one of those men that had denied Jesus stepped forward and says, please don't go, crowd. I need to talk to you today. I've sinned against you. I've sinned against God. I've sinned against the church. And I did it because I was afraid. I thought for sure I was going to die today. And I, I denied him. I should not have done it. I'll never do it again. I take it back. Jesus is my Savior. And I'm going to follow him. It doesn't matter what you do to me. Five of them out of the eight stepped forward and said that. Three went away sad, like the rich young ruler. Five of them stepped forward. One of them said this. Besides that, we're going to follow Abraham. We see the way he lives. There's something different about his life. As he follows Jesus, we're going to follow him. I can't tell you what's happening in Phanotha Salam. Right there in the middle of the strong Orthodox North, there is something amazing happening. I don't, we don't have large number of conversions yet. We have some. But what's really amazing, in a place where you cannot publicly mention the name Jesus, everywhere you go, it's the only thing you hear about is the name of Jesus. Go to the schools. The children are talking about him. Go to the marketplace and you'll find the women buying their vegetables, but talking about Jesus. The coffee shops, there the men are having coffee, and they're talking about Jesus. They're saying, who's been telling us the truth all these years? Is it Abraham or our religious leaders? And this, this, this dialogue is taking place, and there's not a lot of agreement yet, but something's happening. I, I don't know what's going to happen there. I... But I believe God's up to something. I believe that all of northern Ethiopia, the strong Orthodox, do you know, out of a population of 80 million people, 35 million, I'm talking about Ethiopia, 35 million are strong Orthodox Christians. Hmm. God's up to something, my friends. Through one man. One man who made a decision to die before that opportunity to see what he would do. I think the other men maybe not had made that decision already. Abraham already considered himself as a dead man. I'll build my church. Nothing's going to stop me. And I'm going to do it through the testimony my disciples, my disciples who are dead to themselves. You cannot be used of God to build the church and the kingdom in a carnal state. 
we have to die. And I believe that there's that one time where we die to ourself. I also believe we, got to, we have to die daily. Are we ready to die? We keep talking about it. It's in every sermon. We believe it doctrinally. But are we ready? Are we really ready to die to ourself? You give up all of your rights and privileges, just as Jesus did when he came to earth to die for us. He gave up all the rights and privileges of God he laid down. Are we ready to lay down the rights that we hold on to so strongly? We guard ourselves with such intensity. We, we, we guard those things that we think are due to us. The things that we deserve, the rights that we have. We guard them to protect them. And God can't use us that way. The reason we don't have more sanctified Christians, one of them is we don't preach it enough. But another is we don't want to die. We'll pray the prayer, but we don't want to die. We want to hold on. We want control. I think I'll be forgiven if I say this. Even though I have hope, <laughs> the church of Nazarene is my church. You're going to have to drag me out of this church if you want me to leave. I love the Church of Nazarene. But I think that our church is in trouble. I don't think it's a problem. I, th I think it's a problem we can solve. We can resolve. But if we keep going the way we're going, we're in trouble. Because we have no dead disciples. Or I should say, so many of our people in our churches are still holding on to their rights and privileges. We need renewal. Not just those who have not been sanctified to get sanctified. No, no, no. All of us, we really need a fresh outpouring of the Spirit of God in our lives so he can use us. He can do anything he wants, but he's being frustrated because of where we are. We need renewal. Go to our church prayer meetings. I've been there. We pray, yes. We pray about all of these physical needs and no one mentions the lost. Is Jesus really concerned only about the physical needs? Does he not care about the lost? Or is there something wrong with our relationship with him, that his passion, his heart, that loves people, that's reaching out and going out for the one, even when 99 is in a fold? That heart somehow is missing in the church. Someone, I forgot which of our preachers, said somewhere in their message, something to the fact that we're biblically illiterate 
our churches. We're not even reading the scriptures. Something's wrong. And I don't believe God's happy with that. <laughs> I'm glad that I'm an optimist. Because even though I recognize that something may be wrong, I believe that Jesus Christ wants to renew us. I really believe he does. I really believe he's calling us. This whole death thing that we keep hearing all week, I really believe he's calling us into a place of dying to ourselves. And if we've done it before, to die again, and to die again, and to die again, until all we know is what the Lord Jesus wants. Oh, my friends, we need that passion. We need that fire. We need Jesus. We need outpouring of the Spirit of God. I want to see the church move forward into new days. I'm glad for the centennial celebration that's coming up, but I don't want a historical statement. I want to know what Jesus is doing today. I want to hear reports that the Holy Spirit came into our churches and the lives of our people are changing. I want to see us to go into General Assembly in Orlando in June 2009. So on fire for Jesus that that building will not be able to hold us. We need that kind of a fire, that passion. That's what the heart of God is all about. If, if Jesus Christ is truly filling us, then he ought to be controlling us then we ought to have the same heart as he has. I hear the statistics about how many of our people are not leading anyone to the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you heard the statistics? It's almost all of us. I know that some of you are, are very good evangelists, personal evangelists. You build relationships with people. You're bringing them into the kingdom. God is using you. But so many of us, are afraid even to mention the name Jesus. Oh, we'll say, come to our church. That's okay. We'll plant the church. But we're so reticent to plant Jesus, to talk about Jesus. My friends, if we don't have Jesus, we don't have anything. That's all we have. Even our doctrine and our experience of holiness, it's Jesus that gives it to us. He, it's, it's Jesus. I don't know about you, but I don't want to go on the same. I personally want to change. I want to see our people change. I want to hear the stories that I'm hearing from our African brothers. I want to hear it from our American churches and our Canadian churches. Jesus, I'll build my church and nothing will stop me. And then the North American statistics is always less than 1% growth. While the population is far exceeding it in growth. We're not getting it done. I stand with you as an American. I wish I could say, I'm, I'm an African. I wish I could say that. And I, I do say that when I'm there because I really do have a heart for Africa. But I'm American. The church is my problem. That's one of our problems, you know. 
We look around and we say the church has to change. But we're the church. Hey, if we don't change, the church is not going to change. What would happen? <laughs> if at the end of this evening, all of us went out with such a passion, a passion that would approach the passion of God for the lost, filled with the Holy Spirit. What would happen to our churches all across? Most of us are from the Colorado district here, some Nebraska and some others from other parts of the world, but most of us from Colorado. What would happen to the Colorado district? I was talking with David Ralph, the district superintendent. I said, all your pastors are here. Most of your pastors are here. Your district could change. We can change the church. We start here. I threw out about half of my stories because I was running out of time. But I want to tell you, I like what Gypsy Smith said. I don't know if you know who he is, an early evangelist from Great Britain. Someone said to him one day, the church needs revival. Do you know what he said? He says, you want to see the church have revival? I'll tell you what to do. He said, do you have a prayer closet? Do you have some place where you can pray? And the man that heard this said, yes. Okay, I want you to go into your prayer closet, and I want you to take with you a piece of chalk. And when you get into your prayer closet, I want you just to, to bend down a little bit, and I want you to take that chalk and write, draw a circle all the way around yourself, and stay in that circle, and begin to pray, Oh, Lord, bring a revival inside the circle. I'm drawing my circle. I've been walking around since I've drawn it, but my circle is moving with me. I'm praying for a new passion. I, I, you know, this, is, this, has been, this has been tremendous these three days. It's been tremendous. Been great services, great preaching, great spirit. But I'm still not content. I want more. How about you? I want more. God's got so much more for us. Paul said to the Ephesians, that we can be filled to the full measure of God. I don't know about you, but I've not experienced the full measure. I mean, I have in one sense. But there's more of God. He's bigger than I am. He's bigger than my experience. And as I look around, as I watch the church, and as I watch myself, I have determined that we need revival. Are you ready to draw your circle? Do you really want it? He who hungers and thirsts after righteousness will be filled, the promise of Jesus. If we really hunger and thirst, you know, hunger like the starving man and thirst like the man with no drink in the desert. Are we at that point? Are you ready to take controls off from every area of your life?
every area, wherever God calls you to go, whatever he calls you to say, whatever he calls you to do. Are you ready? I'm ready. I'm ready. I've drawn my circle. I don't know today, maybe some of you feel like you'd like to come up front by doing so, proclaim to Jesus Christ that you've drawn your circle. I want to see the world one for Jesus Christ. Anything short of that is not satisfactory. I want to be so passionate about souls that I cannot stop talking about Jesus. I want to be so filled with him that all I'll do is treat people with love. Oh, my friends, we need to love more. We need God. We need to stop planting churches and start planting Jesus. We need to begin to talk about our Savior and our Lord, our best friend. We need to allow him to come and so transform our life. Take us beyond any spiritual experience we've achieved. We need Jesus. I need him. Let's draw our circle. And pray that God would revive us. have done so well this week. Let's give them a wonderful hand of blessing. <clears throat> Thank you. Thank you. Yes. And, uh, my, my, what a week we have had this week. I guess it's not a full week. Sunday night, Monday, Monday day, Monday night, Tuesday day, Tuesday night, whatever day this is, day and night, day and night. Oh, we've had church, and uh, hasn't it been a wonderful experience here with everybody in this Holiness Summit? And uh, praise the Lord. Thank the Lord for it. Thank you, President Harold Graves, for all that you have done, Pastor Gene Great, and everyone who has been uh, mentioned here tonight. I'd like to redo uh, all of the names, but uh, I just say thank you from my heart. I would like to make a quick mention of um, another general superintendent who is here by the name of Dr. Jess Middendorf. And I have the funny feeling that a couple of you have watched us to see if we like each other. <laughs> I want you to know that the Board of General Superintendents has developed such a camaraderie and love for one another that I sincerely love this brother and his dear wife and I hope you have noticed our enjoying slapping each other on the back which is what Nazarenes do if you like somebody you hit them on the back <laughs> or on the shoulder you know but we uh, we have another general superintendent here tonight and Dr. Tom Hermes general superintendent Churches of Christ Christian Union. There is no difference between the Church of Christ Christian Union and the Church of the Nazarene, except some bulletin that has the name spelt differently than N-A-Z-A-R-E-N-E. -E. And uh, we have gotten along so well, and, and we've known each other before, 
but uh, unless Dr. Jim Bond has, has come that I have not noticed him, uh, he also, Doctor, are you here, Dr. Jim Bond? Well, another general superintendent is here. Welcome, Dr. Bond. Welcome, welcome. And he lives in this city, so thank you, Doctor, and I am so glad, so glad that you are here and all of the others. And uh, uh, Dr. Mittendorf and I were privileged to share uh, the uh, eight years with Dr. Bond on the board and others. And, and uh, I know you don't know if you're going to believe everything I'm saying or not, but we really like each other. <laughs> and I'm not going to try to make a big deal out of that. We just like each other, and so we'll go on from there. I think it would be appropriate if I will um, only take uh, one minute to say a, a heartfelt, soul-deep <laughs> thank you for praying for the Deal family through our darkest days. In case there are visitors here tonight, our young son, Dave, who is executive pastor of First Nazarene right down the hill, uh, had a fight with melanoma cancer and um, left us about two months ago. And it's the, <laughs> it's the darkest road we have ever walked on. And I would love to tell you how the Lord is helping us, but I won't take the time to do that tonight. I just want to say thank you, thank you. I, I have no idea how many people have come to my wife, Dorothy, or to me to say, we've been praying for you, we've been praying for you, and uh, you have no idea how much we've needed that. I buried my dad last fall, and I buried my son this summer. And there is no comparison. My dad was 95, and he was a saint of God and went home to heaven, and it was a celebration time. Dave was only 45 with two little girls, nine and seven. And he wasn't finished yet with all of his responsibilities. And um, it has been... Um, without me getting too fur much further into this. It's just the darkest road we've ever walked. And I aim to say this later on tonight, so I guess I'll just toss it in now, then you'll hear it again. <laughs> <laughs> Even though we're saved and sanctified, we still hurt when our hearts are wounded and spirit-filled Christians cry. If not, <laughs> we've sure cried a lot, and we need help, I guess, but it seems to me even Jesus our Lord cried. And now to finish that little part, we have a daughter-in-law, Dave's wife, who has become, in my eyes, a young saint of God. And what Lori has done and how she cared for Dave, and how she has handled those little girls since, causes me to 
weep. Lori, I'd like for you to stand, and I want you folks to bless her in the name of Jesus. Thank you, thank you. Mm. You know me well enough to know that I want to start sharing my soul about all of that. So I have, uh, I, I, because of the schedule being more different than it's ever been in my 15 years of being a general superintendent, I've never had two weeks off in my life in the summer, in the summer, for 15 years. Uh, you know, assemblies go right on through. How could it be that after Dave's death, I had two weeks non-scheduled? It's not happened in 15 years. Evidently, God can see the future. <laughs> and saw a long time ago that I needed to be with family for two weeks. Then I had to kind of tighten up and headed back out on the assembly trail. And, and all of that. So thank you. Now, here we are. Last night, Holiness, <laughs> Holiness Summit. Oh, man, do you know how I feel here tonight? Woo. Well, these, these all-star preachers, one after the other after the other. I feel like Joe DiMaggio just got up and hit a grand slam home run. And then I get up to bat. <laughs> What am I supposed to do? Strike out? <laughs> I'll tell you how I feel tonight. I feel like that little mouse that crawled up on the shoulder of an elephant. And that elephant walked across that bridge that was rope and boards. And the thing was just jumping everywhere. When they got across that bridge, the, the violent water underneath, the little mouse said into the ear of the elephant, we really shook that thing, didn't we? <laughs> I feel like I'm the mouse tonight. And uh, here I, uh, I, I was warned by the Lord. I was warned in prayer don't get settled real clearly on what you're going to preach at the summit because you got a bunch of all-stars before you and uh, they'll steal your thunder. <laughs> now the Lord used different words than that, but that's the, way, that's the way that it came through to me. But I really did think that I was going to preach on what are you filled with? And it's all about being filled with the Holy Spirit and my key illustration, I, I am not making this up, my key closing illustration was going to be having the dipstick from my car to bring it up here <laughs> and say, what's the dipstick stick in your soul? And I was going to pull out the dipstick. Folks, it's a, it's a gospel truth. 
And if you were here yesterday morning, Christian Sarmiento stole that one from me. <laughs> Got up here and preached on the dipstick. I said, well, okay, Lord, that one is gone. And my mind, as every pastor would know, mm. and the, the, the truth that's on me this summer more than any other truth, this is the, I know, I repeat myself, I'm not making this up. The truth that's on me this summer, and those who follow me know this is true. I've been preaching this summer on one that's heavy on my heart. Get out of chapter 7. And get into chapter 8. Well, John Bowling blew that one out of the water last night. He preached the most masterful sermon on chapter 7 of Romans that I've ever heard. And I said, there goes that one, son. <laughs> and what I've got tonight, you've already heard parts of it, and I just finally said, I give up. <clears throat> just get after it. And uh, part of what, uh, part of what uh, my Brother Tom preached this morning is in this one, and part of, uh, of what Mark Fuller preached is in this one. I said, oh, well, they'll never know the difference here. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's coming out of a different mouth, so... So here we go, here we go. Second Timothy, Second Timothy tonight. I learned as a pastor somewhere along the line, certainly not in the beginning, but I learned as a pastor that it was food for the souls of the people if I would have some series preaching through books of the Bible. Not forevermore, but uh, series that could keep their attention and all, and how I enjoyed digging out the truth of 2 Timothy. And we, I had a series in that church, and I think then after that I repeated it in each church where I was pastor, including the last one at Denver first, for I love this book of 2 Timothy. But in that original time of preaching the, the first series for me from 2 Timothy, for whatever reason, I had not caught this before. I knew that Paul wrote the letter. I knew he wrote it to his spiritual son, Timothy, and I knew he wrote it from a prison. I don't know why I missed the lesson. It was his last prison. This was the last jail prison that Paul would ever be in and evidently, Paul, the Apostle Paul, the veteran, war-torn, scarred, veteran of the cross, I, I see him bowed. I see him with gnarly hands. He'd been beaten so many times that I see scars all over him. This great soldier of the cross was now in another beaten-up prison. And evidently the guard said to Paul something like this, whatever you're writing and whoever you're writing to, hurry up and get it done because your day has come. And we're going to march you out of this prison and we're marching you down the road. And there you will die. So hurry up, hurry up. The day has come and you will die. 
And he said then in chapter 4 and verse 6 and 7, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. That's not departure to another country for another missionary journey. That's not departure to go on sailing and find another island and preach the gospel. It was time they were going to take his life and he was going to depart this earth. Therefore, I'm, I'm adding these couple of words, therefore, my son, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, but not to me only, but to all who have loved his appearing. <sighs> Timothy, my son, the time has come, and they're going to march me down the road. Just want you to know I fought the good fight. I've finished the race. It's all over now. I've kept the faith. There's a crown awaiting, and I'll soon receive that. Timothy, I really want you to come quickly. And if you come, bring this, bring this, bring this. But if you're going to come, you've got to get here before winter because I won't be here when winter comes. Bye-bye. Bye-bye, my son. I love you, Timothy. Bye-bye. And he said, Amen. They tell us that Timothy did not get there. In time, Paul was marched out, taken down the road, and they're executed or martyred for his faith. When I learned that by studying as a pastor, digging out some truth for my people, I wrote at the top of the page of 2 Timothy, last words from death row. That's what 2 Timothy is. It's a letter from Paul on death row, and that's about five Bibles back where I wrote that. Every Bible I've had since, last words from death row. We want to know if somebody's on death row. We want to know what their last meal is. We want to know what their last words were. We want to know if they ever repented. Did they ever ask anybody to forgive them for what they have done? We're not talking about a criminal. We're talking about a saint of God. We're talking holiness tonight, and we've heard m much preaching from the hand of Paul through the preachers of this week, as well as from the mouth of Jesus through the preachers, and, by the way, the writing and mouth of Peter through the voice of the preachers. And here, Paul, the, the man who has taught us so much about the life of holiness, was now, if you'll just read 2 Timothy now and think of this, Timothy, I'll never have a chance to tell you this again. Now be sure to get this. Now, Timothy, I won't be able to <clears throat> remind you of this, so make sure that you don't forget this. Read the book or the letter of 2 Timothy, understanding it's death row, and Paul knew it, and it takes on a whole new meaning. Back to chapter 1, I only have time for two verses tonight from, from death row. Speaking to Holiness Summit, Colorado Springs, 2008, verse 6. Therefore I remind you to stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Uh, NIV says, therefore I remind you to fan the flame of the gift of God. I say to you tonight, 
That's one of the reasons why we have had a holiness summit is that the flame of holiness and the flame of God within our hearts will be stirred up. Thank God for those who've been sanctified this week. And they have been because they've been giving us the testimonies. Thank God for those who have been set free from all kinds of stuff. But every person who's walked into this sanctuary, including the preacher, needed the fire to be fanned into flame. And, and if no one was sanctified, if the flame was just stirred and fanned into a brighter fire, it's been worth every bit. Amen. And so I plead with you tonight, don't let the stirring of the fire of God within your heart die out on the way home. This is not a one-time deal here where we come and, and uh, <laughs> it's kind of like a religious state fair. Oh, 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 wasn't that fun? Man, I rode that ride 500 times and, and, and you go home and forget it. No, 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 no. This is a God event. God wants to bring revival to the Church of the Nazarene and the Churches of Christ Christian Union and to the Wesley and our friends and the Free Methodists, our friends, and all the rest of them. The Lord wants to bring a holiness revival in these last days. And he can't bring a revival if those of us who preach and teach have dead ashes in our hearts. Lord God, strike a new fire. Lord God, may it be fanned into a flame. Amen. If your heart still isn't burning with the flame of God's Holy Spirit, I beg you, make your way down here tonight and pray for God to strike fire in your soul. He will, he will, he will. By the way, the president asked me tonight, Dr. Graves said, be sure to tell the students, Stay until you have complete victory or sing as long as you want to sing afterwards. You don't have to worry about running back to class. This is the main thing tonight. Amen. The students ought to, amen, amen, amen. But <clears throat> Just want to toss that in, brother, since you told me to say that. <clears throat> Lord God. Fan the flame. Is there an amen there? Fan the flame. But now this one verse, that's all the farther I'll be able to go, and that is that in verse 7. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. I believe the NIV uses the word timidity, and I am sure that's fine. But I like this one so much better, fear. That's the way I see it. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power. I've been around the church also since my, um, uh, since my birthdays. I mean, uh, my mom and dad were, were new Christians and, and all of that in Des Moines, Iowa. And as uh, we were born, we were taken right to First Nazarene Church, 12th and Forest, and all the rest. So I've been around the church uh, all of these days. And I have observed a few things in my lifetime. And I have observed not only from you, but from me, within me. Even after we are born again and sanctified holy, the devil doesn't give up on us. 
And I know the Bible refers to the devil as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. I know the Bible talks about the devil as a serpent, but I also see the devil as a spider, wrapping a strand of fear about a sanctified person, fear, a little, little, little afraid to go talk to somebody about Jesus. A little afraid, what if we'd bow our heads and pray here in this restaurant? Mm, oh, somebody might think we're Christians. Mm. <laughs> Who, who's got this thing down to 30 seconds? Who's got this prayer down to 30 seconds? <laughs> I had a guy, one, one, a young man, one of my churches <laughs> where I was pastor, and he said, oh, pastor, he said, we buy groceries once a week, have prayer over the groceries, and it's done for the week. Praise God. <laughs> <laughs> so I've been hanging around you folks and I know how, how we all do it we get to a restaurant <laughs> and your hair falls out of place thank you Jesus amen thank you Jesus amen <laughs> I don't have any hair to fall down so I drop my fork on the floor <laughs> thank you Jesus no, I'm joking right there I'm joking right there some of us are a little bit afraid, even what if we'd pray a little bit in a restaurant? What if, what if we'd talk to some guy at the gas station, a fellow down at the post office? What if we'd say something about Jesus to the gal of 7-Eleven? And, and all of these are real true people in my life. Wish I had time to tell you about all these things. What are we going to do about the little gal over there at Burger King? What are we going to Oh, just, just, just quit going. Just don't even go there. No, 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 no. Dear Lord, break the bonds of fear and fill us with power. Amen. That is is, well, I have titled this little message, since everybody stole all my other thunder. <laughs> you can tell I, I, I've really worked on this baby. <laughs> Three blessings of holiness. Three blessings. I don't want you to think these are all. It's all I have time to preach in one night. Three blessings of holiness. The first blessing is this. In the Holy Spirit will fill us with power instead of having us bound by fear. And Lord God, help us that we might break the bonds, the strands of fear. And there's a whole lot more than that. <laughs> so many of us are afraid to take our stand. Ready to take a stand for right and against the wrong. I, I have a feeling we have pastors here, if you're honest tonight, you're actually dealing with fear about getting up and preaching on holiness. Lord, break the bonds of fear. Preach it with power, but preach it with love. Preach it with joy. Amen. Lord, 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 break the strands of fear. And you say, well, I got sanctified, praise God, I don't need anything else until I die. Mm. So you've never had a problem with fear about anything. I need to pray every once in a while, Lord, I think the spider's been after me lately. With strands of fear, set me free from fear. Amen? Amen? <clears throat> I hope you'll forgive a personal illustration from the family. Uh, four children we have. Uh, we, and uh, Dave, I've made mention, he was the banker of the family. 
and Jody is our, our, I'm not going in the proper birth order now, but Jody, our daughter, and uh, is a mother, and, and uh, now, you know, the lead secretary at a middle school in Denver. And uh, Don was the athlete of the family, and, and Jim was the musician of the family, or is. Don's the athlete. They all were athletic, but Don was the one that got more awards. Atlanta, I was pastor there. Uh, Don and the other kids went to Redan High School, <clears throat> Stone Mountain, Georgia. Don really was good in football. He, he, he was all-conference in his junior year. He was captain in his senior year. Football, Georgia. It's big stuff in Georgia. Redan High School. It was the two-a-days before the senior year, before the senior season. Don was the captain of the team and defensive linebacker. And he had a coach that swore something terribly. Man, it was awful. You could hear him in the stands. And they were having the two-a-days. I, I wasn't there. But I guess they had run a play. I guess the coach was swearing like a drunk and said to Don, rah, 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 whatever he said. I don't want to repeat it because it's... <laughs> and, 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 and Don, our son Don, God bless him, he had been rooted and grounded in the faith right there in that church in Atlanta. And he was a saved and sanctified to high school senior can get. And... and <laughs> And God had said, well, uh, I'm going to follow that up later. I'll follow that up later. <laughs> because there's crisis and process. There's crisis and process. Uh, and Don heard that swearing and his name involved, and he got up, and he dusted his pants off, I guess, and walked over to the coach with 65 boys standing around and said to the coach, and I do know his name, I cannot mention his name because he went on to the university ranks and some of you have heard of him. And Don went to his coach and said, Coach, you speak to me in English and I will do anything you say. You swear at me one more time, I will walk off of this field forever. Woo. Woo. Don came home that night. He had his late dinner. He was drinking his iced tea. His head was hanging down. I said, Don, <laughs> what's the matter? He said, I ruined my football career tonight. I said, what'd you do? He said, I ruined my football career. <laughs> I said, did you, did you hurt your knee? No. Did you hurt your ankle? No. I said, what did you do, Don? He said, Dad, <laughs> I took all of coach I could take. And he said, I couldn't take any more of his swearing. And he said, I just went over and told him what I just told you. I said, did you say that to coach? <laughs> yeah, I did. And he said, that's why I'm done. He said, I've ruined my career. <laughs> I went over to that kitchen table. I put my arms around that kid by the name of Don. I hugged him and said, Donnie, <laughs> that's the greatest thing you've ever done on the football field. You took your stand, and I wasn't even there to see it. And I don't think they give you plaques for that. And I don't think they give you a trophy for that. But Don, that's the greatest thing you've ever done. You stood up for what's right. He said, well, I ruined my career. I said, I don't even care. 
I don't care. My point is, and I'm not quite done with the story yet, but my point is, that took courage. That took power. Amen. Amen. Lord, set us free from fear and fill us with power and courage. Don was not removed from the football team. And I know I say this too much. I'm not making this up. (laughs) Two weeks later, two weeks later, maybe 10 days later, the coach called me. I didn't know the coach knew my name. The coach called me. And Mr. Deal, yes. Don's dad, yes. I hear you're a reverend. Uh, Yes. (laughs) He said, I've been thinking, we've never had a chaplain on this football team. Would you want to come and be a chaplain for this football team? I said, uh, uh, chaplain, (laughs) I I didn't say to him, but didn't know you knew what the word meant. Oh, I said, what do you mean by chaplain? He said, I will, the night of the game, he said, we will work out on the field. We will come back into the locker room, and I will give them the last charge. (laughs) And then I will give you five minutes, and you can say anything to those boys you want to say. And then we will go up and go out. (laughs) And he even used a bad word there. Whoa, 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 whoa. God opened the door, and for 10 football games on 10 Friday nights, I stood on a, uh, on a bench in a locker room, stood up there at secular high school, as you would well know, and say to them something for five minutes about something from the Scripture and something about how God's going to help them tonight, but the main thing's the main thing, and I don't need to tell you all that kind of stuff. And those 65 boys learned how to say in unison, Amen. Boom. Bam. I, I said to the coach, what do you want me to do after that? Well, he says, come on out and stand with us along the sidelines. Stand with us. And so I did, and I was all excited. Don came home one night and said, Dad, I appreciate your enthusiasm. Calm down just a little bit. Calm down a little bit. Don't have time to follow the story any farther except to say this. And if, you, if you've ever heard me talk about our church in Atlanta, you know that when we went to Atlanta, it was a challenge. God gave us a Holy Spirit revival in Atlanta. Do you not want to know how it came? Not obviously from the Lord, but it came through the teenagers who decided to go all out for God. And... Uh, we did not have a center aisle, had side aisles and a, and a center section of, of pews. What would you do if you preached every Sunday morning and Sunday night to row one, two, three, four, five? Five rows of teenagers in the front of the church. Woo, that'd help anybody. Five rows. It didn't start that way. That's the way it, uh, it, 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 it finished. Five rows of kids. And Don was in the pile as well as Jim was off to college by then, but, and Jody was gone, but Dave was there. We had a Holy Spirit revival. And I am not saying that it all started with a kid on a football field, but that didn't hurt anything. Amen? And now, to close that little story, 25 years later, 
that church, Atlanta First, now called Grace Point, called Don as their pastor. And that's where he is tonight. And I just stand back and say, I cannot believe. Isn't God wonderful? Are you with me tonight? Lord, God has set us free from fear and fill us with power. Better hurry up. I, I won't be as long on these next two quick stops right here. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love. You can tell I'm, I'm thinking in opposites tonight. The opposite of power is fear. The opposite of love is hate. Amen? I have learned in my lifetime, I have learned that hatred is never born in our hearts as hatred. It comes by being hurt. And sanctified people get hurt. We get hurt. If we don't bring our hurt and the people who caused it to the Lord, that hurt will turn into bitterness. Amen? And if we don't bring our bitterness to Jesus, I, even as sanctified folks, folks, we get hurt. And I, I don't want to say this, but I think the place we've been hurt the most deeply has been in the church. You'd think the world would beat up on us. They halfway appreciate us from time to time. It's the people in church that lead you up, spit you out, and you, and you go home crying. You've, if you don't take that hurt and give it to God, that bitterness will turn into resentment. And if you don't give that resentment to Jesus and let it go, it will turn into hatred. And hatred's not going to make heaven. Neither is bitterness. Amen. And I just want to say tonight, oh God, oh God, fill us with love instead of being bound by bitterness. I've seen enough fear among us, including what I have to pray about about myself, but the Lord knows we've got way too much bitterness in the church. Too many people have had their feelings hurt. They've had their soul hurt. They've had their... They've been walked on. And, and, and we're, I'm preaching to a whole bunch of pastors. If you've never been hurt... As a pastor, <laughs> tell me your address. <laughs> I'm going to come and live with you. But every pastor here has been hurt. What do you do with that? Well, I got sanctified way back 25 years ago. No, no, yes, yes, good, thank God for that. But when you get hurt, you have to now give it to Jesus. Amen. Or that will turn into bitterness. And it'll turn into resentment. And the first thing you know, the fire of God's grace is flickering down. Am I telling you the truth? Right here this week, many, many, many have come to these altars and beyond. And they have given God deep hurts. Because they've come to tell me about it. 
That's revival, and that's holiness. Amen. Amen. Not only to be sanctified initially, we've had so much excellent preaching about that that I thought I would then move on to say, even after we're sanctified and we're walking the Spirit-filled life, from time to time we need to come to a place to pray and say, Lord, I've been beaten up, and I'm giving it to you, Jesus. Amen. Because bitterness then seems to turn into cynicism, skepticism. I don't believe in anybody anymore. Everybody's a phony. Hang around them long enough, they're all, nah. Do you know what I do? <laughs> do you know what kind of a job I have? You know what kind of a job these two general superintendents have? Do, and, and, and our brother, Dr. Bond, who just retired just a little bit back, do you know our mail is basically not, I love you, brother, God bless you, brother, just... <laughs> our mail is... <laughs> I can't believe it. I can't believe... I wrote one guy back. He was so mad. He was eating me up and just, just tearing me apart. I wrote him back and said, how can you be so angry at me? You've never met me. You don't even know me. What are you mad about? My bless God, I'm just mad, just looking for somebody to eat on. Well, you might say, well, praise God, that'd be fun. <laughs> well, then hang around. I'll run, I'll get my briefcase. I'm going to pass out the letters and let you answer them. And uh, the phone calls and some other things. Do you realize, folks, that... Uh, we have to deal with a lot of problems just like you do. I want to tell you that general superintendents do not have some extra work of grace. We have to give people to God also. Or we're going to get bitter. Do you believe I'm telling you the truth? We're going to get cynical. We're going to get where we don't believe in anybody. <laughs> I said not long ago to the Lord in prayer. Well, I was driving, so I was just talking out loud to the Lord. Lord, I want to grow old sweet. And the Lord seemed to answer me in my head, if so, then you better be sweet now. <laughs> because you can't be harsh and judgmental and cut everybody in two and say that's just the way I am, and then you get to the end of the road and you say, sweeten me up, Jesus. <laughs> it's too late. Amen. Lord, <laughs> have I got enough things to say that would cause me to be bitter, and I don't want to get into all that. I've got a stories from here till next week. But I've had to give people to Jesus. I have to give people to Jesus. I have a little phrase that many of you have heard. If you don't like it, change it. If you can't change it, commit it to Christ. And if I can help to resolve a problem with people, I try to resolve it. If I can't, I give them to Jesus. Amen. I give them to Jesus. <laughs> you want to know what dawned on me the other day? I'll bet some people have given you to Jesus. <laughs> I bet I'm on somebody's altar. <laughs> Are you with me? Are you with me tonight? 
Lord God, set us free from fear and fill us with power. Lord God, set us free from bitterness and resentment or worse and fill us with love. And I don't have time to amplify that, but if you were here earlier today, you heard about the love and the forgiveness of Corey Ten Boom. The unbelievable story. You heard today an unbelievable triple exclamation story of Tom Hermes' father who forgave those who had massacred his family in Turkey. I've never heard a story like that. And his dad forgave them with the love of Jesus. That's holiness. Amen? I'm trying to preach holiness to you today. Holiness is having the fire of God's Holy Spirit burning in our hearts. It is being set free from fear and filled with power. It's being set free from bitterness and being filled with love. And there's one more thing, and a sound mind. <clears throat> now, the translation that, makes, uh, that rings a little better in my mind, and self-discipline. Well, that's holiness too. Self-discipline. Enough to keep first things first in our life. If we don't have the Holy Spirit within to help us with self-discipline, you'll never read the Bible. And I think we ought to read the Word every day. You will pray. We have to even be disciplined to do that. We have to be disciplined to pay our tithe because certain weeks you seem to run out of money. We need to be dis disciplined for that. You know, and on and on and on and on. It's pretty practical, the, the, the life of, of holiness, the, the spirit-filled life is not only, thank you, Jesus, you have come and cleansed my heart, but it's also day by day saying yes to yes and no to no. I was a district superintendent of two different districts. I'll let you figure out where this happened. I do know, but I'm not going to tell you. And I was in the car, and both districts are, they have places where you're far away from every radio station. And I was going somewhere, and it was the afternoon, and I needed to wake up a little bit. It's getting a little sleepy, and I ran the dial. I know you're not going to believe this, but there, was, there were no a FM stations uh, that could reach that remote place, and there was only one AM station, and it happened to be a Christian station from a little old tiny town. And so I listened to the <laughs> Christian station, and they had this preacher on there. His name was uh, Swindoll. Swindoll, Chuck Swindoll. And the old boy's a pretty good preacher. And if you don't like this, I want you to send a letter to Swindoll. <laughs> I'm going to give it to you straight from what Swindoll said. Here's what he said. Here's what he said. <laughs> Men, you, you, you drive into the gas station, you drive in the truck stop, and, and you stand around and, and you grab a cup magazine, girly magazine, and you're leafing through the thing. And I remember he said, you cluck your tongue, and you say, ooh, things are getting bad these days. And you put that magazine down, and you go get another one, and it's another girly porno magazine, and you say, ooh, ooh, things are getting bad these days. You go down, and you go get another one. And it's worse than the others. Ooh, ooh, things are getting bad these days. Swindoll cried out, Walk away! Walk away 
Quit standing there looking at stuff, clicking your tongue, saying how bad the world is. Walk away. And I honked my horn and said, Amen. <laughs> and three cows went, Moo. That's not made up either. That's not made up either. <laughs> but that's a whole other story I can't get into now. I used to have to talk to the cows because there weren't other people around. But anyway, my friends, I'm being as honest as I can be. It takes the power of God's Holy Spirit to walk away. It takes the power of God's Holy Spirit to turn the channel. Would there be an amen in the house? <laughs> It takes the power of God to uh, say no thanks. Uh, we don't, I don't drink. I just, no thanks. I just, I just don't drink. Well, what's... Where is that? It takes the power of God to walk away from a trap. Amen. And that's a whole other line. I do not have time to go down that track. But the devil will set a trap for every person here, a moral trap or an immoral trap. And I am telling you the truth, and I can tell you places and places and places. Mm, mm, mm. Including a hotel in Volgograd, Russia, where they said... Do not answer the door if anybody knocks, for the prostitutes are here, and they just watched you walk in. And they called me on the phone, want to know if I wanted company. I said, man, how do you undo the phone? <laughs> <laughs> and I was in a faraway country, and some lady prostitute called me on the phone. This is gospel truth. And talked to me in English and said, I want to come. And I said, Jesus, help me, Jesus, help me. What if she comes and what if she has a key to the door? So I wouldn't put a chair underneath the door thing. You say, what's the matter with you? Don't you remember a guy by the name of Joseph? They got his coat, but they didn't get him. Am I telling you the truth? It takes the power of God's Holy Spirit to walk away. <laughs> Amen. And a thousand more things. Well, I just want you to know tonight... I believe when the Holy Spirit comes, he comes in cleansing power. He comes in purifying power. He comes, he comes with his grace to give us uh, his spirit so we can become Christ-like and all of the rest. But I also want you to know, on the walk, on the walk, on the spirit-filled, sanctified walk, I also know that the devil, like a spider, is going to put a strand of fear around you. I wish there'd be some people that come tonight and say, Lord, just set me free from fear. I know, I know as long as we walk this road that, the, that we're going to get hurt in this life, and I still get hurt, and so I still have to give it to Jesus or I'll become bitter. I wish there would be some others who would come and say, Lord, I've got to give you the people that have just about, uh, they've stolen my joy. And there are some tonight, I don't know who, that are not doing too well with just self-discipline of yes and no and say, Lord God, would you give me enough backbone to live the holy life? Amen, amen, amen. amen. Well, better close. <clears throat> I've preached tonight about uh, power and love and self-control. I was pastor of Denver First Church.
<clears throat> uh, I, I don't have time to paint the background. The church was in a crisis. The church was in a huge crisis. It was a huge financial crisis and other crises. <laughs> mm, nobody told me about that. And, uh, but I was the DS, so I guess I should have told myself. <laughs> but I didn't know it. I, I, oh, man, I'd like to tell you that story. And uh, we, had we had a fleet of 12, uh, uh, 12 leased cars for all of the staff. And the first thing I had to do was send the cars back. And I was real popular for a while. Anyway, anyway, anyway. Oh, it's been making me upset. Just talk about this. And, and, and it, it, we were not having real happy days. And, and it, where the pressure was on. And, and I was feeling under incredible pressure. And I was feeling uh, under all kinds of stress. And, and, oh, dear Lord, have mercy on us. And then the sheriff, the sheriff walked in. This is... The sheriff walked into my office and said, are you uh, Pastor Dio? Yes, sir. And it was Christmas week. <laughs> I thought he had a box of chocolates. <laughs> At the Christmas week, I thought the sheriff went around and gave chocolates to all the church brothers. And he said, well, then if you're Mr. Deal, and then this is yours. And it was a lawsuit from a former staff member, a lady uh, who, who um, had left the church two years prior. And uh, she sued the church for wage and sex discrimination for thousands of dollars. And I had that dumped in my lap. And I said, oh, dear Lord, oh, Lord. <laughs> Could you come, Jesus, in the rapture before midnight? <laughs> <sighs> and you think I'm making this up. <sighs> and by the way, we didn't get out of the lawsuit free. Oh, oh, oh. And I was just about like this. And it was Friday during all this time. <clears throat> and I was distressed. And I walked into my office there thing. And I said to the secretary, Lois, I can't preach like this. I can't preach Sunday like this. I'm all upset. Everything. We had a little cabin built for us right up the highway there. It's 50 minutes from where we live, St. Mary's Glacier, Colorado. I said, I'm going to the cabin. And I'm not coming back, Lois. I'm not coming back till God does something for me. I can't preach like this. I'm all upset. I said, I called Dorothy. Uh, you call her. You call her. Tell her, pastor's not coming back until he gets some, something from God. <laughs> and I said, if I never get help from God, then tell Dorothy, it's been a good run. God bless you. <laughs> but I'm not coming back. And make a, make a long story short, I got the cabin, and I, I put my stuff in the cabin, and I got out and started walking in the woods, walking in the forest, and I cried. I was kicking twigs. And I said, Lord God, I didn't even ask for this job. And, 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 and all, this, all this kind of stuff. And Lord God, Lord, what are we going to do about that? What are we going to do about that? What are we going to do about this? These people are mad, and we just had to close the school. Now all those people are mad. Lord, I'm getting tired of people being mad. And, Lord, I'm just getting tired. The truth is, I'm just tired. And, and I was crying. I was spitting and carrying on. And I know you don't live like that, but that's kind of the way I am. I can tell you that the stump, I sat on a stump, and I looks down over the valley, and I can see the mountain uh, range right to the west, and I can, I can see the stump right now. And in exhaustion, I sat down, and I said, Lord, I don't know what to do with my church. And God whispered, it isn't your church. I said, what? 
It's God's church. And it started to sink in. It isn't my church. Hallelujah. It isn't my church. It's God's church. <laughs> I got up and said, Lord, it's your church. You got yourself a problem. <laughs> and I start kicking twigs. And I said, thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Bless the Lord. <laughs> it's not my church. And I carried on for some while and finally came home that night. Preached on Sunday morning. Had the message ready to go. But you know what happened. Halfway through the message, I got all stirred up. And I told them about Friday. And I went up to the mountain. And I told them, I, it's God's church. And maybe there's some of you that you can't handle whatever's come your way either. Why don't you come down here and give it to God? And I mean the whole place. I mean, the, I don't know if Roger Friels is here tonight, but, but, but there he is. And, he, and you no doubt were there that Sunday. And uh, people were all over the front of the church. And they were giving everything to God. It was a holy moment. And now to finish it up, <laughs> we had a church board secretary by the name of George Turner. And he was Mr. Banker. He was the president of a bank. And everything that you were imagining, he was. He was, he was, was spirit-filled Nazarene, but he was Mr. Banker. And he didn't joke a whole lot. And he uh, called me on Friday with his stern voice. And he said, Pastor, I've received two letters about your sermon last Sunday. I said, oh, no. He said, do you want me to tell you what they said? And I said, no, George, I really don't want to hear it. He said, well, I'm going to tell you anyway. Uh, I've received two letters, and these two people don't even know each other. And they've said the same thing. And I said, well, go ahead. What'd they say? He said, in their words, they said, whatever it takes to get the pastor to the mountain on Friday, send him every Friday. We can tell the man had been with Jesus and send him every Friday. That's what we need before we leave this mountaintop so that when we get home Sunday, they'll say, you've been with Jesus. Would you stand now and would you come as we get ready to sing? But you need to come. Some need to come right now to, to be set free from fear. Some need to come to be set free from bitterness. Some need to come to get self-discipline lined out. Some need to have the flame swept into fire. Would you just come right now? This is the last service, our last time on the mountain to say, oh God, do something so deep with the Holy Spirit that they'll even see it in my face when it comes Sunday. That's right, that's right, that's right. Will you come? Will you come? Will you come? <laughs> oh, what would happen if, if everyone who has any kind of a need now would just say, Lord God, I don't even care who I am or what my title is. I've got to have a new spirit-filled anointing from Jesus. We can have revival. But we've got, to, we've got to come. Oh, that's it. You are, folks, there's room, there's room, there's room. We've got front seats. There's room over here. The truth of the matter is you can pray by the organ. You can pray by the piano. 
Folks, we're going to go home in about 10 minutes, but you need to come. That's right, and whoever will lead us here, yes, that's right, that's right. Just come on. We're not going to hold on long. For this is...